This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com backslash Forbes. This is Forbes Sports Money on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. This show is all about the business of sports. Today I'm speaking with Jeannie Buss. This interview was recorded before the settlement between Jeannie and her brothers took place. She now has full control of the Los Angeles Lakers. Hey, Jeannie, thanks so much for taking some time to join the show. Mike, thanks for having me. Hey, I got to ask you, you know, uh, I'm 57 years old, an avid basketball fan, so, you know, I'm very familiar with the history of the Lakers. I have to admit to you, though, both my parents grew up in New York City, so I grew up a diehard Knicks fan, but I remember those battles going way back to the early 70s between the Knicks and the Lakers and and sort of how that kept going for years and, and then the battles between the Lakers and the Celtics in the 80s. I mean, so much tradition there. What, what was that like growing up in that type of an environment? Well, you know, it's interesting because my father bought the Lakers in 1979. And one of the reasons he did that was he felt that there was a East Coast bias, that uh, teams on the East Coast got more coverage, more attention, and he really wanted to take the Lakers to the next level and really challenge that bias. And so here you are talking about the Knicks and the Celtics, and that's exactly what my dad wanted to do. And certainly he had the good fortune of his first year of owning the team to have the number one pick overall and drafting Magic Johnson. You know, that first year winning a championship certainly uh, made everybody pay attention as to what was going on in Los Angeles, finally. Was that the year that Magic played center in the finals for a game? Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those great moments in sports because uh, it was the finals against the 76ers, who were Dr. J and, and Daryl Dawkins. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was injured in Game 5 in Los Angeles. So back then it was still the you know 1-1-1 one, one, and one in the last three games. So L.A. had Game 5. Philly had Game 6, and then Game 7 would be back in Los Angeles. So the decision was made because uh, Kareem had sprained his ankle that in order to allow him rest and hopefully not for the ankle not to swell, they decided to leave him in Los Angeles going to Philadelphia for Game 6 knowing we would have Game 7 because we were up 3-2, to two, that there would be a Game 7, even if we lost Game 6, back in Los Angeles, and hopefully Kareem would be ready. So that was the plan. And so then when it you know came to Game 6, it was kind of like, well, who's going to play center? And Magic said, I'll play center. <laughs> and then, you know, here's this kid who, you know, it, it, Magic John, being around Magic Johnson is such a pleasure because he never, ever thinks of what can go wrong. He only thinks about what can go right. And uh, he went out and had a MVP performance in that game. And we, we ended up winning in game six. There was never a game seven. And uh, certainly, you know, Magic 
that's that's the kind of person he is. He'll just pick up and do whatever needs to be done to win. I'll tell you a quick story. I remember it was about six years ago, and I was up uh, state New York and sharing a cab to the Capitol there with five other people who were all avid basketball fans. And the cab driver actually had had a job with the uh, Nets of the old ABA when Julia Serving was there. So this, this short cab ride quickly involved into a discussion about who the greatest player in NBA history was. The cab driver said Julia Serving. There was another woman in the car who said Michael Jordan. And I forget what one or two of the other people said. And I said Magic Johnson. And my reason for that was simply this. He's the only player that I ever saw that could play any position on the court and be the best player in the game. Well said. That's exactly that's and and do it with such enthusiasm and joy. I mean, he he was a, he, just a pleasure to watch. Jeannie, do you remember what the earliest memory is of your dad in something that reflects uh, what he taught you? Uh, something that you've continued to use throughout your life? You know, one of the things that was really important to him was education. He felt that education was the great equalizer in society. And um, it certainly, you know, changed his life, the trajectory of his life, um, getting a Ph.D. in physical chemistry. But he used to, he he would play, um, you know, a, a game with us called school. And he basically, it was Trivial Pursuit before <laughs> there was that game. And you got a gumdrop if you got the answer right. And you, you got to pick the category, so science or math or, you know, whatever it was, English, uh, literature. And he would come up with a question and he would, you know, for your level and, and you know, always giving you a challenge. And I think that's, um, you know, that's what's always um uh, stuck with me was how important education was and w- what a opportunity it is for um, people to to you know change their circumstance and uh, currently I serve as a, a trustee at the University of Southern California which was uh, my alma mater as well as his in terms of his PhD and and uh, I, I guess that makes me think of him every day, and 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 uh, it's with pleasure that I I do whatever I can to help. You know, your dad also taught me something, even though I never had the pleasure of meeting him or speaking with him. And what he taught me was, after he bought the Lakers, which uh, shortly after that I got involved in valuing sports teams for a publication that was called Financial World. And your dad sold the naming rights to the arena, which up until that time was really, really uh, uh, rare. I believe it was to Great Western, which, which may have been a bank. And it, and it kind of altered the economics of, of sports and how people looked at arenas, if I recall correctly. He, um, you know, at that time there was... Um you know, Wrigley Field, for example, which was the Wrigley family. So, you know, that kind of had a, a name to it that, that you know, helped the brand of chewing gum or whatever you uh, could, you would say. And, but when he, when he told me or explained what the naming rights was going to be, um, you know, it was, it was a, a um, you know, a brilliant, 
uh, sports marketing move. Um, but, you know, it, it came with some, you know, uh, pushback, some backlash um, about, you know, the commercialization of sports and would the media carry the name of the, the building or would they, they refuse to acknowledge uh, that it was called the Great Western Forum as opposed to just the forum. Um, so, you know, he did, he did uh, blaze that trail and um, certainly he was um, a forward-thinking um, visionary that um, knew how to um, maximize uh, his opportunity. What was he like as a father? Um, you know, his family was everything to him. Um, that's why he worked so hard was to build something that his family, you know, would keep us together, would keep us, um, you know, working together in a family business. Um, he would talk about how his children, um, were his inspiration and that, um, you know, he, he probably would have been a professor the rest of his life, but he knew he couldn't afford to have a large family on, on the salary that he would be paid, and that uh, motivated him to look at other opportunities. So he made his money in real estate uh, investment and then parlayed that into the, um, the forum, the Lakers, and the L.A. Kings hockey team. Do you remember what your reaction was like when he said he had bought the Lakers? Yeah. Well, I was more interested in the forum because he said, you know, when the Rolling Stones come and play the forum, you'll be able to sit in the front row. And of course, that was, you know, I was 17 years old. That was pretty cool. But um, I had played basketball in high school. I was not a good basketball player and never made varsity. Um, but, um, you know, I I was excited about the 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 basketball team as well the the problem i had was with the hockey team because um i my only experience with hockey in 1979 was seeing the movie slapshot which i think came out in 77 76 77 and so i was afraid to go to a hockey game because i thought i'd get hit by a puck <laughs> because that was kind of the theme in that movie the craziness of minor league hockey but um Anyway, you know, I ended up uh, loving uh, the the L.A. Kings, and uh, he sold that team in 1986 to Bruce McNall. But certainly, um, it was it became a, a really uh, a fun family business to be in with the Forum uh, and the Lakers and the Kings. Your dad also, uh, prior to uh, the Lakers ownership, owned a professional tennis team, and if I recall correctly. You were a GM of that team while you were still an undergrad at USC. Yeah, I mean, his first, um, you know, experiment with owning a sports team was um, uh, the Los Angeles Strings of World Team Tennis, which, um, you know, launched in the early 70s. He um, owned the team. It played at the L.A. Sports Arena for two years. Then it moved to the Forum in 1977, and that's where, when he first met Jack Kent Cooke, who owned the the Forum, the Lakers, and the Kings, and that 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 was you know an important uh, milestone because that's what gave him entree into you know um, convincing Jack Kent Cooke to, to sell him those properties. Um, you know, it took a two year negotiation. 
um, but certainly uh, world team tennis was important. So it, that league folded in 1978 and then came back in 1981. And that's when, um, you know, by then he owned the forum and was looking for more content to put into the arena. So that's why he decided to go back with World Team Tennis. And he thought I was ready at age 19 to run my own team, which now when I look back at it, I laugh because <laughs> what was he thinking? But, you know, because of his belief in me, I had no reason to doubt myself. And uh, it was it was actually a, a great experience for me. But when he gave me the job, the first thing I said was, great, I can quit school. And uh, <laughs> going back to the importance of education, he told me um, I had to finish school as well. So I could have the job if I stayed in school, but uh, I could not have the job if I quit school. So that, that, of course, you know, again, resonating those values of education. What are some of your memories of, you know, so many great players have played for the Lakers over the last few decades? You know, Magic, of course, uh, uh, Jabbar, Kobe, uh, many others. Do you have any particular memories of these players that stand out? Oh, you know, lots of memories. Um, you know, Magic Johnson, you know, he was 19 when he came to the Lakers. I was 17. So he's, we, we're only two years apart. So I, I feel like I was raised at the, the same time as Magic by my father. Um, their bond um, really is one of the most special bonds in sports. The inspiration that they gave to each other, it infiltrated our, our family life to the point where, I'll never forget there there was uh there was one game where where Magic was hurt. He dislocated a finger and he was really down about it and my dad called me and he said, I, "You know, I'm going to bring Irvin over to the house. He's really down. Um, you know, um can you can you um turn on the the Betamax or whatever <laughs> whatever recording device we had back then?" And uh it was the night that um MTV um, uh, like showed the Michael Jackson thriller video for the first time. So we all sat and watched it together, um, you know, like a family. And, uh, you know, seeing that that relationship and knowing what that meant to, to both of them. And now working with Magic, you know, the stories that he tells, you know, he had a lot more time with my dad as an adult than I did. I mean, meaning, you know, they would go out to dinner, play pool, do those kind of things that, you know, I was working and going to school. And so it's it's just interesting to be able to hear the insight that Magic had to to my dad. And um, it Magic and I have this connection because we we're basically raised by the same family, so we speak the same language and we, we have the same values. You know, my dad really saw something in magic and he saw something in me and he always told us that he'd hoped that we would work together someday. You know, I think that with a team, if you can create that kind of family environment, that's important because um, as I've learned later on in life, you know, my involvement with our coach, Phil Jackson, um, I remember getting in an argument with him when he he brought the team into practice one 
Thanksgiving. And I said, you know, these guys work so hard. Can't you give them one Thanksgiving off to not practice? And he said, (laughs) they have to realize that this is their family, that they have to spend family time as well with their team. And, you know, I think my dad, you know, created that family environment with the Lakers. And, and I see even from a coaching point of view how important that is, that you, you sacrifice for each other. And so that's kind of how I um, have been brought up. You know, a lot of people talk about things like these and uh, they almost become cliche-ish. But actually, I'm going to admit this to you. I have always been more of a hockey fan than a basketball fan. But I remember there was a time where the Kings had a really great player. Uh, His name was, if I remember correctly, Charlie Simmer. He was a winger. And your dad had a verbal agreement with him about a. he was extending his contract. And Simmer broke his leg. And your father still fulfilled the contract. I, I, re, I remember that. I mean, you know, I was much younger then, and, of course, sports consumed me. You know, I, I didn't have to work or do anything. So I remembered all that stuff. And I, I remembered that at that time. And, uh, you know, to me, that's an example of what you're talking about when it comes to family. I, I don't know that stuff like that happens anymore. At least I don't hear about it. Well, you know, um, you know, that's a that is a story. And of course, there was criticism of my dad for doing that, which is that's crazy. But, you know, it it really was that's how he he operated in business. He always lived up to every, um, you know, um, you know, promise, every contract, everything. Um, As a matter of fact, in World Team Tennis, when I mentioned how that league had folded in 1978, um, you know, my dad could have said, well, the league folded, you know, I don't have to make good on any of the contracts that he had, but he did. He still paid players um, that he had under contract, even though he didn't have to. And I, I, I asked my dad about that, you know, why are you, why do you pay, why are you paying Charlie Simmer? Why are you doing this? And he said, because your reputation will serve you in, as you move forward in business. If you don't have a good reputation, You'll never, you'll never accomplish what you want to, and people will, they won't have faith when they negotiate with you. And if you don't have that, then you've got nothing. So it was really important to him to have a reputation that, you know, even, you know, four years after he's gone, I still receive, you know, phone calls and letters from, from people who just want to tell me what my dad did for them or how my dad lived up to to something that he had promised. When you hear testimonials like that and people send you letters and so forth, how does it make you feel? Oh, it it just, it's, it's like a gift. Um, I, I hope that, I hope it never stops because it, it allows me in real time to feel connected to him. And it's, it's, you know, an amazing thing. Cause I think it's easy, you know, when you, when you meet somebody face to face and they may tell you something and, you know, okay, maybe they were just kind of elaborating or embellishing some other story, but for somebody to write you a letter, uh, a person you've never met and, you know, have to figure out how to get it to you and, and read their words and read them again, you know the sincerity's there. And my dad was really a special person. You know, uh, talking about the business side of things here, 
but also uh, prior to even uh, being GM of that tennis team, in 1979, you won Miss Pacific Palisades. Was that something that was important to you? Um, you mean winning a beauty contest? Yeah, yeah, looking back in terms of at that point in your life, was it something that helped give you confidence? Yeah, I, I was um, very, uh, I mean, I'm still very shy and introverted. And um, a, a beauty contest, which is, um, you know, it is about meeting people, doing interviews, feeling confident in yourself, trying to, you know, take away some of the self-consciousness that you feel when people are looking at you. Certainly the Miss Palisades contest is not, you know, Miss America. It was, it's a small local contest, but it was, it was kind of a turning point for me because it, allowed me to gain confidence and to maybe not blush as much as I, I do when I talk to people because that's kind of a, a giveaway in business if you um, react to, you know, people, li- you know, looking at you while you're speaking. Mm. Uh, one of the things that you touched on about the uh, world team tennis was, you know, booking all those events, you know, Frank Sinatra, Prince, all these guys, you know, that type of experience, how has that helped you today in running the Lakers? Um, it was important, the, the experience on the other side, you know, running a venue like the Forum uh, allowed me to see what it's like to operate a building. And when you're, we're, the, we're just the tenant at Staples Center, so we're just a renter. And, um, you know, knowing the kind of things that, that you have to deal with as an operator in terms of game day staffing, heating and air conditioning, and just all the different things that can go wrong when you're operating a venue that have nothing to do with the event that's being put on. You know, that experience serves me well as the Lakers are, you know, we have to deal with the the staff at Staples Center who have been fantastic. As a matter of fact, the the guy that worked for me as the head of operations at the forum is now president and general manager of Staples Center. So there's there's that you know connection. So I know the kinds of things that he deals with on a daily basis. It was such a whirlwind, uh, at least through the, the lens I was viewing the NBA back then in the 80s in L.A. And you know, of course, all the celebrities that were showing up courtside to the games. I mean, many still do, of course. But you, know, you have Jack Nicholson. And you're meeting all of these people. The team is it, right? It is the thing in the NBA. The, the league itself is growing by leaps and bounds. I think a lot of people forget that in the late 70s, it was, you know, doing very poorly. How did you stay grounded? Uh, am I grounded? <laughs> no. Um, you I, see, I you think... seem to be. <laughs> maybe think... you're not. Let me, let, well, let, maybe I'll start that way. You know, do you feel like you're grounded? <laughs> no, I, I mean... You know, I I think you know. Yes, we're we're surrounded by um, celebrity, and certainly my dad had a feeling about how important it was. He he used to tell me that living in Los Angeles, the people here, you always have friends and relatives who are coming to L.A. and they ask you, you know, I, I I'm coming to Los Angeles. I wanna I wanna do three things. I wanna go to the beach. I wanna go to Disneyland. And I want to see a real life celebrity. And my dad would say, you know, where in Los Angeles can you go to make sure that your, you know, friend is going to be able to see a real life celebrity? And 
going to a Laker game, you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to see one. Uh, We're very celebrity friendly. We accommodate and we secure so that they feel safe and they can enjoy a game and not be bothered. Um, But um, certainly we, we, we like to have celebrities there. But also what's important to me, and maybe this is what keeps me grounded, is that the entertainment industry is our industry. This is what keeps L.A. going. And so not only do we have the the recognizable Hollywood people, but we also have the unrecognized Hollywood people like the writers and the directors and the producers. And, you know, they're at the games as well, the agents. And so it's a working town. It's a great place for people to network in the industry. They're going to see a lot of people in the same place on the same night and it's under the, the, the banner of having fun and, and being in a relaxed environment. So we cater to the Hollywood industry. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. A lot of businesses, too many, think of payments as a mechanical function. It just needs to work. But your payment solution can be an engine for growth. It can help up your conversion rates. It can help tap you into market growth. It can help allay security concerns that are limiting your customers' spending. And payments can be a way to provide new experiences to your customers. You want to grow your business? Rethink your payments. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com backslash Forbes. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. So if you like to read... How do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. And it's coming to Podcast One in just a few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. We've mentioned some of the things uh, or discussed some of the things that you've learned from your dad. Was there anything that you learned from any of the people, the celebrities or the stars of the team or maybe not even a star, just even a bench player that played for the Lakers that you had conversations with or spent time with over the years that you've been able to use as your career has moved on? Certainly, I've been influenced by many people. Um, You know, Billie Jean King is a mentor for me, as is Kobe Bryant. And, you know, for all different reasons, you know, Kobe Bryant um, with his, you know, here's a guy who who loves winning as much as Magic Johnson does, but his approach to it is so completely different than Magic. But yet the outcome is the same. Having a relationship with Phil Jackson certainly gave me an opportunity to kind of understand more about the team building side, how you have to put pieces together to make them bigger than the sum of the parts and bringing out the best in every person that it doesn't matter where you are in the pecking order, everybody contributes. And I think that serves any business person well to make sure that everybody knows what their role is and is satisfied at the end of the day what their contribution 
was. You know, I mean, I guess I could go on and on. Certainly, Commissioner David Stern was an important um, influence in my life and continues to be as he is, you know, now kind of in retirement, but that I don't think he could ever be in retirement. He's too busy and too popular. So I've had a lot of great influences in my life. How has the business of the NBA changed going back to when your dad first bought the team up and through today? I think from the basketball side, through collective bargaining, through revenue sharing, I think our league has made it more of a even even ground so that every team and every market has an opportunity of well-managed um, can compete for a championship. And I think that's important, even though, of course, um, you know, it it was nice in the 80s when the, the Lakers won five championships in, in that decade. Um, you know, that kind of dominance. I don't know if we'll ever see it again, um, which I think is makes a, the league healthier. That's something that my dad always advocated, always taught me that you're only – as good as your weakest team and if your if your weakest team is on the verge of bankruptcy then it, that te- one team could take the entire league down so it's important that we have a healthy league i think basketball wise we do we have an amazing commissioner in adam silver and his leadership and what he's really done is made the nba part of everybody's day he's so savvy in terms of media and um, what the NBA means to every different uh, level of fan, to the casual fan, to the hardcore fan. We don't alienate against any group. We're a league that, you know, really appreciates its players, its fans, and brings them all together in a way that I think the sky's the limit as the NBA becomes more international and how many international players we have, that it really is a, a thing that unifies. The NBA is the, the cream of the crop, and we're in really good hands. In the last 10 years, I think we've turned over ownership of two-thirds of the team, and this crop of owners is really um, not only bright and successful in their own industries, but they're also socially conscious and they are they know that the NBA is a great platform to set an example for all of our fans and and maybe you know all across the world for what we can stand for. He's had to uh, the commissioner has to make some tough calls though uh, beginning early on there was the Donald Serling situation with the Clippers who of course share your building where the commissioner and and the owners came around and said that because of the comments, the racist comments that he had apparently made in private but were made public, he had to sell the team. And then there was, more recently, of course, moving the NBA All-Star game out of North Carolina to New Orleans because over laws that were passed in North Carolina. Do you feel comfortable with both of those calls? Absolutely, and I can tell you that the all the ownership feels um, confident in Adam Silver's leadership, and certainly he he's guided us through uncharted waters, and he has a really clear sense of the direction that he wants the the to lead us in, knowing when to 
go easy and when to apply pressure. We're very lucky that he's ours. <laughs> do, do you feel, though, it's a fine line at least, though? In other words, uh, you know, if other states, for example, were to pass similar laws to North Carolina, uh, it could make things tough having set this president, precedent. Or, you know, in the case of uh, the Clippers, it, uh, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Mavericks, uh, you know, said early on, he said, you know, it, it can be a slippery slope because if, if somebody's making comments in private and they're made public, you know, where do we draw the line on this? I mean, could this eventually be something that becomes more challenging for the NBA as seemingly at times the country has very different views on some of these social issues? What's important to us is that we have a league that's inclusive. We want everyone to feel comfortable and and a part of the NBA. That's what's important to us. That's what we value. Was there any uh, resistance at all or people not wanting to perhaps hear your view because you're a woman? You mean within the, the Board of Governors? Within the Board of Governors or perhaps even in casual conversations with other owners from time to time? Not at all. I think that's why we have such a successful league is that we have very forward-thinking ownership now. I feel that I have a seat at the table. I'm never marginalized. I have been included on advisory committee, the labor committee. I am not excluded at all because I'm a woman. You know, you, you touched on some of the things with the, the way the uh, league has changed and the collective bargaining agreement specifically, you know, with the salary cap. And then, of course, there's the, the huge uh, national TV deals that started this year, which is all combined to make the league much stronger all combined. I think the only teams that lose money now are those that spend way over the salary cap. So so they have enormous payrolls and then they get hit with the uh, the luxury tax uh, penalty. Um, but still, you know, for the Lakers, things have turned the last couple of years. I mean, about three years ago, you guys signed that huge $3.6 billion 20-year TV deal, local cable deal. Everything was great. Of course, Kobe, like all players, he retired. Last couple of years have been tough. Mm -hmm. What has that taught you, and how have you dealt with it? You know, we we kind of went through this. You know, when Magic Johnson retired in 1991, you know, he easily could have played another three to five years, but because of the HIV virus, he had to retire suddenly. So we weren't prepared. And so the early 90s, we, you know, we suffered. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you were a Kings fan. And in those early 90s, it really was so great because the great one was a part of the L.A. Kings, Wayne Gretzky. And uh, so the, where we where the, the Lakers were faltering, uh, the Kings were going to the Stanley Cup final. So that really saved the forum business. But, you know, we've been through this once before. Then in 96, Shaq uh, came as a free agent. We drafted Kobe Bryant. And then in 99, Phil Jackson came in, and we moved to Staples Center, and we started winning again. And I, I had made myself a promise that when Magic retired and we struggled those years, that if we ever got so fortunate again to, to be in that position, to be on top, that I would never take it for granted. 
and we had an amazing run with Kobe Bryant for 20 years, uh, winning five more championships. And here we are faced again where next season Los Angeles is hosting the NBA All-Star Game at Staples Center. And, you know, I'm concerned that we won't have an All-Star on the team. And that would be, that would break my heart. So certainly this is, you know, a, a new challenge for us having Magic Johnson now as president of basketball operations and a, a, a general manager that he handpicked in Rob Palinka, you know, hopefully we will be back to Lakers basketball that's been lacking the last few years. What was Magic's reaction like when you asked him to come back and be part of the organization? You know, I'm I'm pinching myself because what happened was at the end of December, it was, you know, made the, the personal announcement that uh, my engagement to Phil Jackson had uh, been called off. And so Magic, being part of my family, gave me a phone call to find out how I was doing and just to kind of cheer me up. And I said, well, let's, let's have dinner soon. And so, it, you know, uh, around the middle of January, we had dinner and uh, before a game, and he sat with me at a game. And, you know, at the dinner, he kind of talked about, you know, because, again, we're about the same age, and he said, you know, I'm just at the age now where I don't really want to do th- anything unless I'm really passionate about it. I'm just kind of letting go the things that, you know, I'm not in, really interested in, and I just, I really want to help you with the Lakers. It kills me to watch them, you know, not be part of the, the playoffs and, and, and really kind of lose their position in terms of the NBA, because, you know, when, when he's walking down the street, he's got people yelling at him saying, you know, what do you, what's going on with your Lakers? And, and I said, you know, well, why don't you come on as an advisor and just be my ears and, and eyes and just be, you know, help wherever you can. And so he was announced as a, um, a special advisor, uh, consultant to me at the beginning of February. To me, he's such an asset that, you know, I, I figured he would be, he would be great to help out in every department, which he did, and he was already talking to corporate sponsors and doing our broadcasts, and and you know wherever anybody felt he could help, they were asking for the help. Except in the basketball department, you know, which was disappointing to me, and I felt that it was time to make a change, and you know, because usually with with Magic Johnson. In order to get on his calendar, it usually takes six months. And, and here he was so present and so excited and so willing to help that um, I felt that it was important to take that opportunity and to make a change and have him oversee our basketball at the Lakers. Was there any concern on your part that having such a big role would be, even for magic, a little daunting because he's also a minority owner in the Los Angeles Dodgers? He doesn't have uh, day-to-day responsibilities with the Dodgers, and he really has, um, you know, divested himself from his other obligations so that he could make this a priority. And again, I think, you know, when you and I first started talking, we were talking about how Magic decided to um, play center 
uh, when the Lakers were playing mm. the 76ers in 1980. You know, he is a guy who is not afraid to take on a challenge, and he will do whatever he has to to win. And it's an instinct that he has. He's a natural leader. He's like the Pied Piper in the office. Everybody wants to be around him. He's His enthusiasm is infectious and we've lacked that for the last several years since um, Dr. Buss has been gone and he's he's bringing back that joy and what it means to be a Laker and I know that sounds so cliche what does it mean to be a Laker but you know what it means to be a Laker is you don't ever not want to be a Laker that's what it means to be a Laker and so when you have players on a team who don't want to not be a Laker they play harder. They they want to be part of what the future is going to bring, and I'm excited about it. And certainly, I'm, I I have complete confidence that Magic will lead us there. Before you guys sealed the deal, was there any one guarantee or thing he wanted to hear from you or you from him? What was important to me was, um, you know, how he felt about our coach, Luke Walton. Because Luke Walton is, um, you know, he is somebody that uh, I believe can be our coach for, you know, the next, you know, 10 or 15 years as long as we don't kill him. And I, 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 I saw from my experience with Phil Jackson that if you can build a foundation of players who know the system that you want to play, the style of play you want to play, then you really you really have i mean the spurs have done it the best where they have a core group of players and then they just kind of you know switch pieces as they need to but you you know popovich is i i don't know how long he's been actually coaching the team but you know i i believe that if we build with luke in mind um then you know he's somebody that can be around a long time and that's exactly what magic johnson said when i asked him one of my first questions that that night at dinner in january what do you think of the team and he said you know he would build the team around luke walton that's incredible the team has really struggled the last couple of years been pretty bad uh you mentioned magic working with sponsors when he first uh started doing some work back with the organization have the sponsors and season ticket holders stuck with the team absolutely they've been great the partnerships that we have have been um they they believe in in what we're doing i think that the last few years has been a challenge and i think they were waiting for a change and I think they're they're very happy with the change. But now now it's about delivering results, and uh, certainly that's just like any other front office. You can have the biggest name in town, but if you can't deliver success, then you know you're only as good as your wins and losses. When you took over the keys to the team, did you feel you were ready? Um, my dad felt I was ready. And, you know, again, you know, when he has belief, then it's hard not to believe in yourself. And when the, the new TV contract with then Time Warner, now Spectrum, was completed, he said to me, well, now you've made sure that the family will be able to keep the team, you know, 
forever for the future. And that meant a lot to me. You know, he, he, he put us in a position, and not, not enough people talk about this or even want to talk about it because I guess it's not as fun as, as you know, talking about the games. But, um, you know, he, he took, you know, over a 10-year process to make sure that when an asset the size of the Lakers that we've seen in, in many instances in, in sports – when an asset the size of a team is passed on to the next generation, usually the estate taxes are so great that that asset has to be sold to you know, meet the taxes. So he wanted to make sure that the family would have the opportunity to keep the team. And so he spent you know, seven or eight years transferring stock to a trust and paying the taxes with each transfer so that the burden wouldn't be so great when it finally happened. That was his vision, and um, he put in the trust that I would be named controlling owner upon his death, and, you know, he believed that I could do it, and that is my commitment to my family and to my dad's memory is to keep this team in the family. Are you enjoying it? I don't like the losing. In all the years that my dad ran the team, there was only, you know, twice that the team didn't make the playoffs. And so now we're coming up on our fourth year in a row of not making the playoffs, and that is tiresome. I think that's why a change had to be made, and it was made. And I'm confident that we will get back to uh, Lakers um, basketball soon. Some of the areas now that are seen as growth opportunities for the NBA weren't even around when, when, when I started first following the NBA. You know, you talk about digital technology and some teams have had jersey sponsorships. Now you're going to have the NBA E-League for eSports for e and, and some teams like the Heat have even, aside from the NBA D-League, in, invested uh, in eSports in e leagues. Uh, which of these, if any, excites you the most uh, in terms of future opportunities for the Lakers and the NBA? I think the patch on the jersey is a, a real exciting opportunity. I think each team has approached it in a different way and, and what's important to them. We haven't announced a jersey sponsor yet, but for us it's it's about a strategic partnership and about enhancing the brand and, and, and having a brand that you know, we enhance them, they enhance us. So I think that's a great opportunity. Esports, I think on a league level, I'm looking to our league, um, you know, our commissioner and, and the other people in the league to really figure out what the right investment is for esports going forward. You know, I want to I see where that translates and, and how it, it fits into what the Laker business is. Back in the day, uh, your dad used to own a WNBA team, the Sparks. I realize you don't own your building, but do you think that an opportunity may exist in the future to get back into WNBA team ownership? Well, actually, Magic Johnson <laughs> owns a part of the L.A. Sparks now, along with <laughs> the uh, uh, Guggenheim Partners who own the Dodgers. So I guess we're, we're connected in that way. Um, uh, you know, I've always been proud of the WNBA and uh, what um, that means for, for female athletes to have an opportunity to play pro 
is important in every sport. Um, and uh, that's why I'm involved in something separate than the Lakers in uh, the WOW Women of Wrestling. Uh, it's a professional uh, women's wrestling you know, entertainment property that I've invested in and that I'm proud of. But certainly I think that, you know, the Sparks won the championship this year and Magic was very much a part of inspiring and, and kind of off the court coaching with the Sparks. And he was he was really proud of that championship that they won. As a matter of fact, they won it and he challenged them to win it again <laughs> this coming season. <laughs> so uh that's the way that that magic is always want, thinking about winning. Tell me about this women's wrestling league. Back in the eighties, there was something called the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it, it's what I like about it is it's professional wrestling, but the their characters. And so, you know, my my favorite characters are a tag team called Caged Heat, and uh, it consists of Delta Lot of Pain and Loca. And they are two wrestlers who are released on a work release program from prison so that they can come and wrestle. <laughs> and it's it's about, you know, good versus evil. And it's a family event. It's fun. It's entertainment. But what I like about it is is it's an opportunity for these great female athletes to have a place to perform. And I'm just so impressed with them. I'm a, I'm a product of Title IX you know, and the opportunities that I had to play high school sports. And now we have so many women that, that you know, um, compete in all different sports and, you know, earn scholarships to college. And then, you know, unless you're, you know, in the WNBA or, you know, on the women's tennis tour or maybe an ice skater, you know, you, there's not a real, really a lot of opportunities to continue in sports and earn a living. And so this is, um, that kind of marries my two passions to give women a platform to perform and this wrestling where it's good versus evil and women fight their own battles as opposed to maybe some of the other wrestling that women are, you know, damsels in distress and they have to run to a man to, to fight their battle or to be saved. Well, I have to tell you, you know, um, I've never spoken with you before, and as I said, I was a huge, huge admirer of your dad, both uh, for what he did with the team, but really for, you know, like I mentioned, with the naming rights to the forum as, as somebody, as a journalist who was focused on valuing teams and then all of a sudden looking at arenas in very different ways and the value of the real estate and so forth. But you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter. Uh, she's my only child, and... Um, you know, you are the type of person that I would like her to look at uh, as, uh, in addition to my wife, of course, as a role model uh, f for women. And I'll tell you why. It's, it's, from the outside, it looks complex. But as I've been researching you and talking to you, it's kind of like you've done it from different angles. You've done everything. There's no stereotyping you. In other words, you, you know, you've been in a beauty pageant on that side. You've pl posed for Playboy on that side. Yet on the other hand, you're in wrestling. You're in a rough and tumble world. You're a GM of a tennis team. And combining it all into, into one experience. And, and my mind goes back to, you know, one of the things you kept when your dad passed 
were, were his reading glasses. And, and I sit here and I wonder, are, are, is all of this now you looking at life through the lens similar to the way your dad did? Well, first of all, that you could not say anything more flattering to me than to to say that you would want your daughter to to look up to me or to see me as a role model. That that is the the nicest thing you, you could say, and I think that my dad would say the same thing. That my dad, even though he was known for um, having you know many girlfriends and 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 very um, fine taste in in women and dating and having fun, he was also a person who empowered women, and he believed in education. He he um, sent many young people, women, men to, to school to make sure that they would have the opportunity to get a degree. You know, that was something that he never saw a gender gap. You know, it was never about females being the weaker of the two sexes. You know, he, he never had any doubts in my capabilities, and he would be pleased to hear you say that, and he would be pleased to see women succeed at every level of business. Well, I meant it with all my heart, and I got one more question, and then I'm going to let you go because I know you got a NBA team to run and a very busy schedule. What is the one thing you think that people would find most interesting that they probably don't know about you? I I think that they, people would they, they don't believe me when I say that I'm shy and um I would not be a good poker player. I don't <laughs> I don't have that <laughs> that ability to um you know not uh, blush in in certain situations and uh you know I I think that um you know being in the world that I'm in and the kind of things that I have to do um you know, I'm I'm kind of a, a, a shy retiring type, and that's why Magic and I are so, such good. Uh, you know, maybe that's why my dad always thought Magic and I could work well together because I'm more behind the scenes, and he's more of the 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 uh, the camera ready um, person that that uh, you know can hug the world, and uh, we are we are a good team together. We complement each other well. And so I think that's probably what people would find surprising about me is that I'm kind of a shrinking violet. Well, you've been a very, very gracious guest, and uh, I can't thank you enough, Jeannie, and I, and I wish you tremendous success. I know you will be successful, and to the chagrin of myself and all the Knicks fans here in New York, uh, I'm sure the Lakers will be back. <laughs> I, I don't count out the Knicks. I think I think you'll see everything's going to fall into place the way it should with the Knicks. But uh, that's not my concern. Is my concern is the Lakers and doing whatever's best for the Lakers. And I appreciate the conversation. And I and I, you know I do remember my dad and I would talk about the the valuations that you would do and and seeing how. Um, you know how how analysis would would go about, and my dad would use that opportunity for me to to go through the numbers and say where, you know what what the writer was thinking, and so that I guess was you, and uh, you know using it as a learning opportunity and teaching opportunity to me because he was always the professor. That's very gracious of you. Thank you so much, and mostly th- thank you for the time and the. And I mean this all my heart. The genuine experience of getting to talk to you, it, it's, uh, 
it's a big honor and I appreciate it very much. Thank you for the opportunity and I hope we can do it again soon. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. Don't miss Yosemite Mariposa County this spring. With this winter's unprecedented snowfall, the waterfalls and wildflowers will be the best they've been in years. And the Merced River is bursting with possibilities. Rafting, fly fishing, goal panning, and don't forget skydiving, ziplining, hiking, biking, museums, shopping, dining, stargazing. <sighs> or you can just kick back and go with the flow. This spring will be epic. Don't miss out. Plan your trip today at Yosemite.com. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, they are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.